0: I, I, I have a um, I have a story actually that my buddy who works at the aquarium. Eric, he told me, told me this. They were locking up one night because every every year our oldest shark, Ray Sweet Pea, they throw our birthday party, put giant inflatables in the. It, it's this sp- all big deal. Well, on the night of sweet, <laughs> on the night of Sweet Pea's birthday party, already. On the night of Sweet Pea's birthday, as everyone was about to was about to close was about to close down, and the guys were supposed to go into to the tank and get all these inflatables out, they look at the at a camera they had, and our and our original male shark race scooter was mounting Sweet Pea on her giant inflatable birthday cake. <laughs> oh. Welcome
1: to the SOFAR Channel, Episode 1, The Abyss, What Don't We Know?
2: Your captain, Jose Cuevas. Why do people watch bronze? They don't do anything unless they're fed. Nicole Dreyer.
1: It sounds like you have the case of the squids where you're very either depressed about everything or very angry.
0: And Ethan Daniels. So yeah, seahorses are kind of awful
2: Hello ladies, gentlemen, and cephalized coordinates of the internet, I'm Jose Cuevas of the University of San Diego and SeaWorld San Diego, and I'm here with a new show called the SOFAR Channel, bringing you the latest oceanographic information at the speed of sound. I'm joined, as will come to be expected, by the lovely and talented Nicole Dwyer of the University of California, Santa Cruz's Merrill College, and the Seymour Marine Discovery Center in affiliation with the Long Marine Laboratories. How are you doing today, Nicole? Oh, I'm doing excellently. So, Thanks. if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, that'd be wonderful.
1: Um, I excited like, to be here. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm totally excited to be on a podcast on the internet that maybe one person will listen to, and that will be my mom because I will tell her about it. Um. So my affiliations with the Seymour Center, I just became a docent, so I lead people aimlessly around the Seymour Center, telling them random facts and fun things about climate change and what we can do to uh, prevent it, but in the most positive light, you know, take people back to the Terry Williams Research Lab and show them some dolphins, explain the research, Basic
2: stuff like that. Also joining us is the Newport Aquarium's resident Ramora, Ethan Daniels. He isn't actually employed by them.
0: And yet I basically do what Nicole does at the
2: aquarium. Right then. So Ethan, tell us about yourself.
0: I'm just I'm just a general well well, I'm a zoology nerd. I've always have been. So I just sort of hang out. Out of the aquarium, I I believe I officially know more about what goes on at the Newport Aquarium than the staff does. It's, it's amazing.
2: Since I forced you two to both introduce yourselves, I, I suppose I should do the same thing. That might be a good idea.
1: Introduce yourself, Jose.
2: Uh, hey, so, hi, I'm Jose Cuevas. Perhaps you've heard of me. All right. So, where to begin? Um Well, right now I'm studying marine science at the University of San Diego. I'm part of the class of 2016, Go Terreros. And I'm also employed by SeaWorld San Diego as an educator in the zoological operations department, and my role there is really just to educate guests to the adventure park about the different animals and Narrate the exhibits and provide a little bit of an interpretive edge. This is similar to the roles I've held in the past in institutions like the Birch Aquarium at Scripps, when where I interned with Nicole. And uh, I've basically just been fascinated with the ocean my entire life. I think it's the I really do think it's the final frontier, and I think it's important that we study it and maybe understand it a little better. And the lens I'm choosing to consider that through as the lens of life so marine biology and i guess that's really my story ethan i think you went to the aquarium today
0: <laughs> yes yes i indeed did <laughs> okay. yes i i go two three four times a week
2: <laughs> i don't have a problem
1: <laughs> <laughs> and see i led a tour on wednesday
2: But again, I don't think that's an irregular occurrence.
1: No, it's not. But on this particular tour, I was so lucky to have one single grandmother and a toddler whose main interest was picking up the rocks and throwing them in the air.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Terrible memories just sparked.
1: And it was windy, so... I'm glad I had the short tour got that over with. Hopefully she learned something.
2: So with that, I guess we can move on to rip currents. RIP CURRENTS! Okay, we're back with the rip currents, the news, the various events and such that's current in oceanography. There was a pun in there somewhere, I think. Uh, And our first story is about the Keeling Curve. So, Nicole, if you could tell tell us about that.
1: Uh, so, the Keeling Curve is this curve that Ralph Keeling from Scripps Institution of Oceanography has um, put together. And it, it's basically charting the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere based on um, measurements of types. And all the CO2 has come from us lovely humans. And it recently reached above 400 parts per million, which is much faster than anybody had ever had predicted, which is pretty sad because they had supposedly made some pretty strong uh, models of these things. But there is still hope we can do things to help slow this down, maybe bike to work. To school, public transit. Although sometimes public transit's kind of
2: sketchy, but
1: it's definitely worth saving the planet for.
2: And you can find daily updates for that on Twitter at, at Keeling Curve. That's at Keeling underscore curve, which gives you daily updates on global CO2 from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography uh, live via the Mauna Loa Observatory.
1: Or you can search the hashtag impending world doom.
2: That, that is also applicable, yes. The next story we have is about James Cameron and various things he's done in the past year. So, Ethan?
0: And now for something completely different. Basically. James Cameron, to be publicly honored with the script's Nirenberg, Nirenberg? Nirenberg, I think. Prize. James Cameron, of course, director of, the, of Titanic. He is well-known for or liking to adventure in the ocean, is going to be, be talking about his expedition, his records setting Deep Sea Challenge expedition at the UC San Diego campus. The expedition, of course, was funded by his own money, And, yeah, I have no idea what I'm talking about here.
2: It's okay. I'm pretty sure James Cameron didn't either. But what matters is we got awesome footage of the Challenger Deep out of this. Yes. Expedition.
0: It's, it's, all, it's all shiny. And it's like a torpedo. It's awesome. It's awesome, guys.
1: The moral of the story is if you have a shit ton of money, you can basically do anything you want.
2: But hey, you right. gave us a lot of valuable data. Yep. I'm sure people will be looking at that 31 years from now and still finding things. So. People underestimate the value of video footage. So, I guess I've got the final news bit. Um, so, recently. The British Royal Society has published a paper on the genus Ocedax. Uh There isn't, isn't really a distinct common name for these, but they're bone worms. Uh, so these are worms that live on whale falls. And so what happens is sometimes when a whale dies, its corpse just sinks. And and it's colonized by a bunch of bacteria and small organisms. It's like when a tree falls in the forest and a little ecosystem is formed out of that dead tree. It's the same concept where a little ecosystem is going to form around this whale corpse. And the British Royal Society has found how members of this genus actually get into and begin to digest worms, or not worms, and begin to digest the bones found that give them sustenance in there, which is really cool. And there's actually a proton pump that they use, and they use acid, and they eat through it. Hey, the Royal Society talked about it. It's bound to be significant work. And really, there isn't much known about these things. So the more we... The more we can learn, anything is valuable information at this point. Um, But yeah, whales and the deep sea. I think this all fits into our topic very, very well today. So I think it's time to move on to the quarter deck.
0: Quarter deck.
2: Okay, so time for the quarter deck. That's the topic discussion, the main bit of the episode. And today we're going to talk about the abyss, the unknown, the aphotic zone. Basically, what don't we know about the ocean? Because that's clearly the thing to talk about on a podcast. What we don't know rather than what we do know. (laughs) So, there actually is a lot waiting to be undiscovered in the ocean. As the the Royal Society, uh, I'm pretty sure they had some idea of what was going on with that before. But it serves as a brilliant illustration of... Deep in the ocean, there's a lot that we can't assume, and there's a lot that we need to verify. Because whenever you publish a paper, that's new information going out there. And the fact that the Royal Society was able to publish a paper on something like that means that, oh my gosh, we don't even know how things down there eat, how they. Uh, so we very we understand very little about how they actually live down there. And there's just a lot we can take away from it.
1: Down in the deep there are these uh, hydrothermal vents, and um, some scientists believe that um, possibly the origins of life may have come from areas like that. So, like, instead of slowly evolving from uh, photosynthesizing things, we may have evolved from chemosynthesizing things from the depths of the ocean. And that's pretty intriguing.
2: It's definitely an idea, and it's really, really cool.
1: But is there any way to prove that?
2: Well, I think what we need to do is get a crap ton of money, build a submarine, and then go down there and take pictures. We should
1: take it into the Monterey Bay Submarine Canyon. That canyon is like, ten times larger than the Grand Canyon.
2: my God. That's and awesome. I love it's the full of
1: many, many things that I don't know about because the deep abyss
2: is unknown to me. Monterey Bay, The Monterey Bay Marine Trench actually still has a lot of really cool legends associated with it. Supposedly of these ancient deep-sea creatures that people sight in the bay. Not necessarily recently, but during the Age of Sail. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, what if these people actually did see these things? What if they're just hiding in the trench?
0: Like the oarfish?
2: Yes, exactly, Ethan. Yes, exactly. I mean, there are just so many things that are unexplained. And I guess that's really the entire goal of science, to find an answer to that unexplained. It's like magic. It is like magic.
1: Science is... Absolutely just like magic.
2: Science sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Absolutely. We're all witches and wizards. Anyway, so we can talk about
2: the abyss.
1: And there's this stuff called marine snow. And one of the sweetest old ladies I've ever met is also this brilliant scientist named Mary Silver. And she discovered marine snow. And marine snow is basically a ball of snot that has been created by, um, I think it was salps, but marine snow is caught up in this net of mucus that's created by this creature. Marine snow is really important because it catches detritus Um, marine snow, falls slowly, and it is a huge source of um, nutrients for the bottom of the ocean. And, oh, another really cool thing that eats marine snow is the vampire squid. Totally looking, like, menacing looking, but all it eats is marine snow.
2: And there really isn't a lot we know about a lot of things like that, especially, like, the deep-dwelling cephalopods and such. Like, we have legends of, oh, the kraken, and oh, the giant squid. We don't really know too much about them, and the most recent, and, like, the earliest video footage of the giant squid and the colossal squid comes from this century, which started, like, 13 years ago. We're not too far into the 21st century, and the fact that basically all of our data, all of our visual data, at least, about like the deep sea uh, cephalopods comes from recent information. It's just astounding, especially because these things have been described since the age of sail and maybe even before. I mean, there are a lot of legends out there and there may or may not be truth to them, but it's kind of intriguing because I personally really think it. the ocean's the final frontier and that's why I'm invested in this, um, because it's like, why are you going into space if you're not even done with your own planet?
1: I know. I was I was actually just about to say that. Or like, why does NASA get so much, like, credit and...
2: Well, not anymore.
1: Well, not anymore. But they, like, everybody was like, oh, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And I'm like, no, I want to dive into the deep
2: ocean and see what is down there. covers 70% of the planet. We've explored about 10% of it. James Cameron, of all people, is the one pushing the envelope.
1: Yeah, I mean, when some some dingbat uh, director is is putting all the money into it, you need to really seriously consider where our money's going. Plug for federal grants for scientific
2: research, and that's why the National Science Foundation is so important. Not just the NSF, but several grant. Granting, I suppose is the best term. Grant-granting institutions who are supportive of this research. That's why they're so important, because they're contributing to the general knowledge of us as a species, of us as an entire global civilization. I mean, this planet belongs to everyone. Why not learn as much as you can about it? It's wonderful, and it's fascinating, and it's beautiful. There's just so much to find out that we don't know yet
1: absolutely beautiful. But Seriously,
2: there's just so much to learn. So much that we don't know. And, and if you do discover something, not only are you going to get credit for it, you're going to have the internal satisfaction of, guess what, I know this and nobody else does yet. And you get to bottle up that excitement and it's like, oh my god, I know this. I'm the first person to know this and now I get to share it. Yes. Sharing is the best part. It's really just a thrill of classic discovery. I mean, yes, we've mapped the seas. Now it's time to really get down in them and explore them. Get that information and then share it so that other people can find even more information. Draw between the blanks and just try to understand the state we exist in a little better. Absolutely.
0: Someone said cephalopods and that got me and that got me on on this whole thing. It's yeah.
2: Thrill of Discovery.
0: I I, sp- I spent a lot of time on Humboldt Squid.
2: Oh my god, I, d- I actually have a Humboldt Squid um lens and beak in my room. Oh, really? Yeah, from a dissection I did a couple of years ago. That's awesome.
0: You know that um that modern science believes that the kraken was actually was actually a very large Humboldt squid, which would make sense considering Humboldt squids are highly aggressive.
2: Are they found in that range?
0: They're found.
2: It'd be like the north, right? Well, that makes sense.
0: Kind of. They've been found in in the Pacific Ocean, but they, but. They've been found in the northern Pacific, but it's predominantly Mexico and Peru that they've been found.
2: Yeah, I can see them in the north Pacific. Um, oh, that's interesting. But at the same time, it's just so difficult to plot the ranges of these organisms because you don't just have a north and a south and east to west to worry about. You also have an XYZ orientation, how far up or how far down the water column you're worried about. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, and,
1: like, how are you going to put some uh, time-depth report- recorders on some squid?
2: Tag a squid. The squid just eats the tag. Yep.
1: Well, and the then, tag just falls off, which is And more then like sperm whale eats the squid, so there you got some time-depth data for some sperm whales.
0: That was actually an idea they had. They had the idea to, to attach a camera to a Humboldt squid, and then send it down to try and find bigger specimens of itself. And this, the camera got attacked, the squid got eaten by another squid. It, it was just a mess.
2: <laughs> so I was right, again.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: science should never change. It's awesome. And then, well, let me guess what they tried to do after that. They tried to design a better camera.
0: Oh yeah, the first <laughs> camera got worked, the
2: Funding declined. the
0: the first The first camera actually worked pretty well. Before this camera was was destroyed by a, a Humboldt squid, they did find a very large squid. I think that I think that the um that the proportions of it would have placed it if it was a Humboldt squid around seventy or eighty feet from one te- from the longest tentacle to the other longest tentacle and. It was a giant squid, it would be like 125. It, yeah. Yeah, it, it was a big squid. Oh, I'm reading yes.
1: right here that, um. Oh, I remember. There was a couple of months ago, there was this whole, like. A bunch of Humboldt squid were just, like, beaching themselves in Santa Cruz. And this article out of Stanford is calling it a frenzy of suicide. Apparently. Humboldt squid have um, depression issues, much like the humans that want to know about them.
0: So we're establishing here Humboldt squid have two emotions, depression and anger. Yep,
2: yep, sounds about right. Uh, I agree with this, yes. Oh, and I think also
1: I I would also add um, horny as a third. The male squid would basically try to copulate with absolutely every squid that it sees.
2: True, true, true. I, I was thinking of octopi. In some mm. cases, a certain octopi.
0: The yeah, octopi at Newport Aquarium has laid eggs.
2: She's gonna die. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> she she's good. She's gonna die, and she's not gonna have any offspring because we don't have a male octopus.
2: So now oh. they have to find a new octopus.
1: We actually just got a new octopus at the Seymour Center, and I'm really excited about it because we didn't have one for about a month.
0: What's its name?
1: Uh, we haven't. I don't think we name our animals
2: Even we don't want to like
1: anthropomorphize that? them. I guess. Well,
2: I like it think it's the barnacle. At the same time, you can name it. Like for scientists, name the subjects of their studies, all the time. Oh, yeah. Like Nock, the beluga whale that supposedly mimicked human speech. And Sponging Eve, the dolphin that invented the sponging behavior.
1: Sponging Eve?
2: That, that's the term they referred to her as. Like, they, don't, they can't identify the individual, clearly, because she passed long before they were able to identify the behavior existed. But that's the term they referred to her as in the paper.
1: Hmm. Sponging
2: Eve. Like, you can name something, you can get attached to it, you just have to understand this is an animal, and I need to divorce myself from those sorts of emotions when evaluating this at this point.
1: Yeah, you know what I found? I found a lot of people, when they're coming into the aquarium, they really like to gender the animals, even though they have no idea what the sex of the animal is. And they usually go for the he. That's
2: an interesting assumption.
1: Yeah, because all of our sharks are female, no but answers. about about eighty percent of the time, they will say he for the sharks.
2: Does it vary based on the actual animal, or
1: I think I think a lot more of the time. Um, the sharks, so, like, I guess more perceived as, like, aggressive animals have been like, deemed he by visitors. Whereas sometimes, um... No, I think most of the time it's just people like, assume that a lot of the animals are male.
0: That's really interesting. I've, I've noticed it, too. Just just what they Yeah, just an automatic
2: assumption. I usually like I try to refrain from an identification like that unless I can get some sort of distinguishing feature.
0: The only the only animal that I've seen people in instantly not think is is male is angelfish. For some reason all angelfish are female.
2: And that's probably the same idea that's going on with the shark. The angelfish is a feminine animal because it has the word angel in it. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the shark, which is a bloodthirsty killer, thanks to Jaws. Yeah. It's really interesting, though. Yeah. And I guess that also goes back to what don't we know. Like, it's really easy to educate the public at large. Well, male sharks have claspers so that they can copulate. Or, you know, monogendered species do exist, but the angelfish is not one of them. It's really easy to just go up and say that, but...
1: It's true, yeah, and I've only had very few times have people actually asked, like, oh, are there um, different sexes of sea stars, or are they um, hermaphroditic? It's just always... uh... It's definitely not an active thing where people are like, oh, all of these animals are male. I think it's just like so ingrained in our language that, like, male pronouns should be put on things.
2: But we're not a la- But English isn't a language that has gender pronouns for everything. There's a reason it exists.
1: Right. Right.
2: <laughs> we're not French. French, you need to engender something, even if it's the wrong gender. The table has a gender in French. Exactly.
1: And back to the unknown above
0: the abyss. World sharks.
2: Thrilled <laughs> sharks, yes. Angel sharks. It's,
0: it is rather amazing that we've just been finding all these animals that were once thought to go extinct that are now just, we find them in the ocean. Like celiacants. Coeliacanths were thought to be extinct for so long. It's it shows how little the we actually know about the ocean when these things that are prehistoric and probably shouldn't be alive anymore because they haven't changed they're still they're still kicking.
2: Yeah, I was listening listening to a program on the BBC and they were like, uh, "What living fossil would you most like to discover?" Uh, the first answer to that question was actually no. <laughs> probably a the Park reference but uh, the next one was the trilobite and I got to thinking about that it's thoroughly possible if trilobites do still exist um, because horseshoe crabs exist they fulfill a similar niche it is to say that the trilobites aren't just hiding out in deep pressure deep underwater
0: the nautilus that's another animal that I'm not sure if it actually is a living fossil but it's considered one
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't think we ever actually considered it extinct, but it does have a lot of the ancestral form still clearly present.
1: Yeah, and they're pretty much just really goofy to watch swim.
0: Would you say they're the spoonbill of the sea?
1: I would say that's pretty accurate.
2: Yeah. Uh, Once I was at the Birch Aquarium, not working. I, was, I think it was the end of my shift, and I walked past the Nautilus tank, and it kept bumping into the wall of the tank. <laughs> Except, it wasn't propelling itself backwards. It was trying to do forward motion, oh, bumping no. itself into the side of the tank.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh, man, on
1: Wednesday, the monkey face eel. Like, usually the thing is, is just in its little, like, crevice hanging out. But on this day for some reason it decided that he was gonna come out and swim aimlessly and then get up to full speed straight into the side of the tank. Like you could hear a thud, like it was so bad, but also so funny.
2: Jailbreak
0: that (laughs) That's basically all our wool fields at the Newport Aquarium. That is all they do. They either hang out in their holes or they just lie waiting by the glass, waiting for for a weakness <laughs> or something. We have four holes.
2: That's actually why you can't keep mantis shrimps in aquaria, because they're going to attack the side of the tank.
0: Why hello there, Mr. Handsome Ape Pig thing. One, two, three, death. <laughs>
2: And since they can attack with the force of a twenty-two caliber rifle, glass goes down like a bad action movie.
1: Ah, like many of which James Cameron has directed.
2: It It all goes back to James Cameron. Well, I guess with a mantis shrimp we can move on to the catch of the day then. So let's do that. Catch of the day. Well, I guess it's time for the catch of the day. This is the Critter of the Episode segment on the SoFar channel. And today we're not actually talking about the species or a or genus. We're, we're going full on today. We're starting off strong. We're talking about a full order of marine animals. We're talking about Orders Damatapada. One of the most creatively violent creatures on Earth. The mantis shrimps. Mantis shrimp. Mantis shrimps are kind have gone kind of memetic on the internet lately, and that's why I chose to talk about them on this episode. So, mantis shrimps are really pretty, really deadly, and actually edible. They taste good. Supposedly, there's oh, no. there's a cuisine section on the Wikipedia page. It's awesome.
0: It's it's mostly Eastern Asian and yeah. Mediterranean and so Waikiki.
2: Yeah, so, like, I'm pretty sure that's where, Ethan, I'm pretty sure you just described the entire range of the order, but.
0: Exactly.
2: (laughs) Yes, they are edible. Uh, I I suppose the actual issue comes from trying to catch them.
1: Yeah, you don't want to get your teeth knocked out.
2: Aquariums don't typically house mantis shrimps, because they tend to slaughter every other creature they share a tank with, and also because they can break aquarium glass. The lone mantis shrimp in the splash zone exhibit, which, by the way, is the touch tank exhibit at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, likely arrived as a hitchhiker early last year within rocks or coral. The museum imported from Florida in Fiji.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! So it was on the. It was at the touch tank.
2: <laughs> <laughs> mantis shrimps also have fantastic visual systems. Oh yeah. Which is Wait,
1: so, Can't they see more than? Um Like a, a wider color range than we can.
2: This marvelous creature has not one, not three, not five, but 16 color receptive cones. The rainbow we see stems from just three colors. So just try to imagine a mantis's rainbow created from 16 colors. So yeah, their rainbow goes deeper into ultraviolet. They can see about as much red as we can, but they have like 12 extra ultraviolets. So it's like a thermonuclear bomb of happiness in unicorns.
0: What was the the phrase to describe mantis shrimps? Shrimps Genghis Khan dipped in sherbet ice cream?
2: Yeah, pretty much. It actually kind of looks like that, too. The peacock mantis, at least.
0: Which is the one we're going to be talking about, mostly, because the peacock mantis is best mantis shrimp.
2: This is just an awesome gene or order. This is an awesome order.
0: Yes.
1: At this point, I'm just on YouTube watching a bunch of videos of mantis shrimp punching the shit out of clams. Words
2: can't really do this order justice. You just have to see it. So go to YouTube, Google mantis shrimp. I, I think that basically covers the catch of the day. Bioacoustics. Well, now it's time for Bioacoustics. This is the feedback segment of the show where we read letters to the editor, complaints, praise, basically anything you send us. Except since this is the first episode, we don't have any of it. So I'm just going to give ways you can contact us. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at at SoFarChannel. That's at S-O-F-A-R-C-H-A-N-N-E-L. You can email us on Gmail at sofarchannelpodcast at gmail.com. That's uh, exactly what I just said, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at G-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M. Uh, you can also contact us individually via various forms of social media. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Professor Ware. That's at P-R-O-F-F-E-S-S-O-R-W-H-E-R-E. On Tumblr, you can find me at castofflines.tumblr.com, C-A-S-T-O-F-F-L-I-N-E-S dot T-M-B-L-R dot C-O-M. Uh, Nicole, if people want to bother you on various parts of the Internet, where they where can they find you? Well,
1: I would say the obvious place is uh, at com spelled N-I-C-O-C-O-L-I-K-E-S-O-C-T-P-O-E-S... Wait, how do I spell octopuses? <laughs> it's complicated. Um, you guys are good at spelling, so... Nikoko likes octopuses at Tumblr. .tumblr.com Yeah. That one.
2: Yes, that one. <laughs> Is there anywhere... Where else they can find you legitimately? Legitimately uh...
1: (laughs) you can find me at the Seymour Marine Discovery Center on Wednesday mornings
2: That sounds like a thing somebody could do if they live in Santa Cruz. Yo, I listened to the show. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, in Santa Cruz, it's off of... uh, what road is it on? It's off of Delaware, if anybody in Santa Cruz knows.
2: If you live in Santa Cruz, you probably know where it is. So.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: Hit that up. It's a really fun place. It's and a wonderful place. Ethan, even though you aren't necessarily going to be on future installments of this show, where can people find you? Because you have very aptly named contact information.
0: You can find me at Edzoologist. That's E-D-Z-O-O-L-O-G-I-S-T.
2: Well, that's basically all we have for the show this week. Um, Anybody have any last-minute comments, concerns, questions they want to say?
1: Uh, Mantis shrimp
2: are awesome. I I will toast to that, ma'am. I will toast to that. Ethan?
0: Yes. Yes, I will also toast that, but I don't have a beverage, so.
2: Well, that's all we have for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully, we'll have our identity a little more figured out next episode. But I think this went well. See you next time on SoFar Channel.
0: Downwelling.
2: <laughs> that sounds like excellent exhibit planning.
0: I I question, I question everything that goes on there. <laughs> I have yet to get any answers. Why do they... <laughs> Why do they continuously throw things in, take them out, out like two hours after they throw them in, and then put them back in? We have have a tank full of lionfish. I cannot tell you how many times since July the lionfish have been completely removed from the tank, completely put back in. Completely removed from the tank, completely put back in. We have like a dozen of the things.
2: At least they're not, at least they're at the aquarium and not terrorizing the Atlantic coast. True. That
1: is true. Those lionfish.
2: Never trust a lionfish. He's probably lion. Oh. The SoFar Channel is unaffiliated with the University of San Diego, the University of California, SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, or the Newport Aquarium. SoFar Channel is produced by Jose Cuevas and hosted by Jose Cuevas and Nicole Dwyer. This episode features narration by Anthony Bishop and a guest appearance by Ethan Daniels. Thank you for listening!